All right, yes, happy Mother's Day to everyone. As most of you know, we're in a sermon series entitled The Four Resurrections. So we started on Easter Sunday, and the first of the four is the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. The second resurrection was baptism. The third resurrection is the spiritual resurrection. And today we're talking about the fourth resurrection, which is our bodily resurrection, which happens when Jesus Christ returns. Now, let me tell you about George. When George turned 21, he decided to start investing for his future. So he began putting aside $200 a month into a mutual fund. $200 a month at the age of 21. He invested for nine years. He did that until he was age 30, and then he just stopped investing altogether at age 30. So he invested over that time period a total of $21,600. Stopped at age 30, assuming an average 10% rate of return how much money does George have when he turns 68 years old? Okay, 10 years, then stop. 68 years old. Well, if you crunch the numbers, it's 3.2, or I'm sorry, 2.35 million dollars. 2.35 million dollars at age 68. That's the magic of compound interest. Now that's 21 years old. When I was 21 years old, I knew this. I was taught this, and I had seen the formulas. But when I was 21, I did not do this. And the reason why is because I was 21 years old. And 68 seems so far away, a galaxy far, far away. Now, not so much. Seems a lot closer. But that's part of the problem with the fourth resurrection, the bodily resurrection. It's the one of the four that's in the future. The rest are either in the past or in the present, but this one's in the future, and sometimes we can struggle to see its relevance for today. How is our future resurrection relevant for today? I'm glad you asked, because that's the way I want to approach this question. How is the bodily resurrection in the future relevant? I'm just going to say, there are a lot of ways, but I'm just going to say three the first one, the first way it's relevant is because it's going to happen to every single one of us. Every one of us in this room, outside of this room in the world is going to experience the resurrection. You know, I, I, I read this past week that the sun is slowly burning out. When it burns out, life on planet Earth will be impossible, which might seem alarming, until you realize it's not supposed to burn out for another four and a half billion years. So that's not going to happen to any of us, therefore, so what? But the resurrection is going to happen to us. Jesus said in John 5, 28, the time is coming when all the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God's Son, and they will rise again. Hey, a couple of months ago, I read this book. It's called uh, Life After Death, The Evidence by Dinesh D'Souza. Life After Death, The Evidence. If you have a kind of a scientific bent you lean that way. This is a great, great book for you. If you have a family member, maybe who's a skeptic about spiritual things, about Christianity, about life after death, the resurrection, this is a great book to give to them. They only believe in the science. He goes a lot into the science in this book. I highly recommend it because it explores many lines of evidence for life after death. For instance, modern physics like like string theory and quantitative uh, mechanics, modern biology, neuroscience, morality, philosophy. 
even NDEs. I hadn't given a lot of credence to NDEs. I read this book. Now I'm, I'm rethinking that whole thing. I said, if you don't NDEs are, you have to look that up. But just let me, I'd like to read some quotes from it. I'm just going to read the, the final summation after he's explored all these different areas. He says, far from disproving life after death, reason and scholarship give powerful support to it Reason and revelation don't clash. They reinforce each other. So that's great, and it's faith-affirming, but it's not the primary reason why we do believe in the resurrection and for ourselves. The primary reason or line of evidence is the resurrection of Jesus. Now, we talked about this on Easter Sunday. I'm not going to re-preach that sermon, but just to revisit it very briefly, there are four historical facts about which there is practical unanimity among historians, believing and non-believing historians. And that is that Jesus of Nazareth was executed by crucifixion. That tomb, his tomb, was empty. The apostles believed that they had seen Jesus alive after his death. And the Christian church was founded 50 days after those events in Jerusalem, about three-quarters of a mile from his empty tomb. So it's, it's a cause and effect argument. Like those four facts are the effects. What is the cause? The most reasonable and rational explanation is that Jesus of Nazareth did physically rise from the dead. And our future resurrection is predicated upon the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So our future resurrection is relevant because it's going to happen to each one of us. Now here's a second reason. Because that future resurrection, knowing about it, believing it, helps to assuage our FOMO. Helps to assuage our FOMO. Now what, what is that? F-O-M-O. What does that stand for? Yes, Emily, fear of missing out helps to assuage that, to mitigate that. Or I thought of another acronym after I sent this slide to Kent. I didn't want to replace it, but alongside of it, you could say SOMO. SOMO, sorrow over missing out. Sorrow over things over which we have already missed out. Now, some of you, if you're an older type, you might be able to complete this advertising slogan. It goes like this. You only go around once in life, so you have to grab all of the what that you can. Gusto. That's right. You only go around once in life, so you have to grab all the gusto you can. Now, of course, that's, a, that's an advertisement for beer. Not sure why you knew that. Some of you planning a keg party after church or something. I don't know. But uh, it also could be a worldview and a philosophy. Maybe not a majority philosophy, probably a minority, but there are those who, who believe that. The idea, you only go around once. There is no life after death. That's just something people tell themselves to comfort them. Really, this life is all there is. And if this life is all there is, if that is true, if that were true, then yes, you, you got to go for the gusto. But for someone who believes that, there's a certain desperation that characterizes that life, if that were true. If I only go around once, I really, I have to get mine, and I have to get it now. 
There's no certainty about how long I'm going to live. If there's any person who stands between me and what I want, my gusto, that person can be pushed aside. If there's any circumstances that is hindering that, those circumstances, organizations, whatever they are, can be abandoned and walked away from. I'm gonna get mine. If this is all there is. Susan Smith was recently in the news because she's soon to come up for parole. Now, some of you may remember in 1994, Susan Smith was a mother and she had two young boys. She strapped them into their car seats and then rolled her car into a lake where those two boys drowned. Now, initially she claimed that it was kidnappers who did it, but eventually, of course, the truth came out, as did her motivation. Susan Smith had been secretly dating a man and he didn't want children. So she fantasized that if she could get rid of these children, these inconveniences that stood between her and this relationship, then she could go on to have a relationship with this man. She was convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison. But just this past March, it came out, she's been corresponding with her current boyfriend, male, in the mail, and has told him that if she gets parole in two years, if she's paroled, she wants to get married, have a family, and enjoy all of those things that she's missed out on because life is passing her by. Now, that's an extreme example, I understand. I mean, most people, you know, they're not going to go out and kill their children because they're inconvenient or they're standing between them and what they want. But the extreme example illustrates a point. Let me ask you a question. Now, this is a hypothetical question. Don't answer out loud. <clears throat> but are there things in life that have passed you by? Are there things in life that have passed you by? And you're, there's no way we, we can ever get those. Are there things in life that we are missing out on? Someone once said, when I was young, I thought of life like a baseball game. I thought it would hit a home run every time I got up to bat. Now I'm just trying to get through the game without getting beamed on the head by the ball. You know, I read the Bible and I, I sometimes think of things I don't often hear addressed in a lesson or a sermon. Like you read in the Old Testament how God sent Moses to deliver the slaves in Egypt. The Israelites are in slavery. Great, great for that generation who got freed. But I think about all the Israelites who had lived and died in slavery before Moses came. 400 years worth of Israelites. Children who were born into slavery, grew up as slaves, died as slaves. Not much gusto for them. Or I think of the, the Christmas story and remember how Herod was threatened by the news of the Christ child. And so he was trying to kill Christ, a little Jesus, and an angel warned Jesus' parents to flee from Bethlehem, and they did. They fled, saved Jesus' life. But what about the other two-year-old boys in Bethlehem who were caught up in Herod's dragnet trying to capture the Christ child and were killed as a result? The collateral damage of the Christmas story. And not much gusto for those little boys or their moms 
their dads, their families. You think of the Ukrainians, the latest victims of a senseless war, these refugees, not to mention the ones killed, leaving their country by the hundreds of thousands. They don't know where they're going, what's going to happen. I read this past week, many of them sold everything they had just so they could have some cash, some money for this journey as they're seeking a refuge somewhere, only to find out afterwards the Ukrainian money is worthless. (laughs) Insult to injury. All they have is the clothes on their backs. Not much gusto for them if this life is all there is and they're never going to get any of that back in luke chapter 16 jesus told a story of a rich man who lived for the gusto he just lived to satisfy himself throughout his life didn't think anything of anybody else or of god outside his gates there was lazarus a poor man who longed just to eat the scraps that fell from the rich man's table. They died, and lo and behold, there's an afterlife. And in the afterlife, it's a good place for the poor man, Lazarus. But for the rich man, not so much. And the rich man complains, and here's what he's told. During your life, you received your good things, just as Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here while you are in agony. There is a resurrection coming wherein God sets things right. What have we missed out on? What has passed us by in life? Motherhood? Fatherhood? Marriage? Family? Good health? Good teeth? Good skin? Good hair, good finances, good relationships, good grief. What has passed us by? What have we missed out on? What are we afraid of missing out on? The Bible teaches that in that next life, we'll be comforted for the things that we've lost or missed out on, and we'll be given good things. Now, knowing this and believing this changes our entire perspective and our frame of mind. We can face our challenges in life. We can face our fear of missing out or our sorrow over missing out with hope and courage and faith because you don't go around just once. This life is not all there is. In this life, we're moving toward another life. And in that other life resides 99% of the gusto. It's there. Now, if we get a little gusto here, well and good. That's icing on the cake. But if we don't, that's okay, because most of the gusto is there in that next life. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. Our present troubles are small, and they won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them, and will last forever. I'd substitute the word gusto for glory. They're producing for us a gusto that will last forever. Makes a difference. In fact, if you read the history of the early church, Eusebius, those early Christian generations that were persecuted by Rome over and over again, there were Christians who were stepping up to forego all those good things, material possessions, 
popularity, sometimes family and sometimes their lives. They had such courage and such faith in the resurrection, they said, that's all right. I stand with Christ. Take it all away, including my life. Because they believed the gusto was yet to come. That's what they lived for. Courage, faith, and hope makes a difference. It's relevant today. All right, then one more, one more reason. What are we talking about? Why our future resurrection is relevant to us today. The third reason is because choices that we make today are determinant. The choices that we make today are determinant as far as that future resurrection. Again in John 5, this is Jesus. The time is coming when all the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God's Son. They will rise again. Those who have done good will rise to experience eternal life. And those who have continued in evil will rise to experience judgment. So yes, everyone in the world is going to experience a future resurrection. But there are two different kinds. There's resurrection to life and there's resurrection to judgment. The choices that we make in the here and now are determinate. They determine which resurrection we experience, life or judgment. There are two choices that we make that determine whether we experience life. Two choices. Choice number one is to obey the gospel. To obey the gospel. Now that's a, that's a phrase, obey the gospel, that summarizes the way in which God has prescribed for each person to respond or receive His gracious offer of salvation. There are four gospel commands to receive salvation. There are not five. There are not three. There are four. Number one is to believe. Believe the gospel. Believe in God. Believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. His sacrifice on the cross that pays the price for our sins. His resurrection that regenerates our hearts. It's to believe. That's command number one. Gospel command. Gospel command number two is to repent of our sin. To turn away from sin. Turn toward God. Gospel command number three is to confess Jesus as Lord. Confess Jesus as Lord. And number four is to be baptized into Christ. Baptized into Christ. Those four gospel commands. In Romans 6, Paul writes, all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into His death if we have been united with Him in a death like His, speaking of baptism, if we've been united with Him in a death like His, we will certainly also be united with Him in a what? A resurrection like His. And here we see again how baptism is the occasion of our salvation. When God applies the benefits of Christ's death to us, his resurrection, and also, and this happens in the mind of God, God places us in Christ. That's the position of salvation. We're baptized into Christ. Romans 6.3. We're baptized into Christ. Galatians 3.27. That's the first choice. Determinate choice. Whether we're resurrected, he says we certainly. This is where the guarantee of certainty comes. That we will, in fact, be resurrected to life, not judgment. The second choice that we make is to stay in Christ. And how do we do that? By keeping the faith. By keeping the faith. The Bible teaches in Ephesians chapter 2, we're saved by grace through faith. That is true. Therefore, 
As I understand the biblical teaching, the only way a Christian can lose their salvation is not because they're so sinful. You cannot sin the grace of God. It's by losing one's faith. Lose your faith, lose the grace of salvation. We're saved by grace through faith. Our job now is to hold on to our faith. That's our choice. That's how we stay in Christ. In the Old Testament, David was the greatest king of Israel. But at one point, there was a rebellion against his rule. He was actually chased out of the capital city of Jerusalem by this rebellion. On the way out, he and his entourage, they're leaving Jerusalem. They're heading out to who knows where in the wilderness. There was a guy named Shimei. He was waiting for him out there. And he starts, he's going to kick David while he's down. He's throwing rocks at David. He's throwing dirt on David. He's hurling curses on David. One of David's generals says, David, just let me cut this guy's head off and let's be done with it. But David said, no, leave him alone. God's against me. He might as well be against me. After a while, David puts down that rebellion. And he's heading back into the city, his capital city, in a triumphal entry. Entry, And here comes Shimei running out there. Hey, you know what? I, I think I made a big mistake. I'm sorry about all that. Didn't really mean it. And again, the general says, let's cut his head off. And David says, no, no, let's show him mercy and grace. And that's what they did. They allowed him to live upon one condition, Shimei. He had to spend the rest of his days in the city of Jerusalem. In the city of Jerusalem. 1 Kings 2. Here's, here was the condition. He was told, on the day you go out and pass over the Kidron Valley, know for certain that you will surely die. Your blood will be on your own head. And Shimei said to the king, what you say is good. As my Lord the king has said, this so your servant will do. All he had to do was stay in Jerusalem, which is a beautiful city. It's the city of great king. It's Zion, the city of God. That's all he had to do. Stay in the city. Don't go out the city limits. That's where grace was. That's where mercy was. That's where salvation in the city, which he did for three years. But then after three years, I don't know if he got arrogant, he got cocky, he got careless, but he ran an errand, and he left the city. And when he came back, he lost his life. If we've obeyed the gospel, we are in Christ. We're in the grace of God. We're in the position of salvation. All we have to do is stay here. And we do that by holding firmly to our faith. The Hebrew writer says, Hebrews 3, we all share in Christ if we keep till the end the sure faith we had in the beginning. Jesus said in Luke 18, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Yes. He will find faith in you, and he'll find faith in me. Do not let Satan steal our faith. Do not let trouble or persecution wither your faith. Do not let worry or greed choke your faith. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death that one way or another, I shall experience the resurrection from the dead. And he goes on to say, I don't consider myself to have attained that yet, but forgetting what's behind, I press on to what's ahead to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. Our job is to hold firm to the faith until we get home. How do you do that? Well, that's a whole sermon series in itself. But I'm just going to kind of make a summary statement. 
You know, you dance with the one who brought you. How do we get in Christ to begin with? We believe, we repented, we confessed, and we were baptized. Those are things that we can do every day. We can reaffirm our belief, our faith, every day. This is one of the reasons I recommend books like this. If you're a bookish person like me, Life After Death, The Evidence. Reading a book like this and just reading the Bible in general, it affirms our faith. It strengthens our faith. What about repentance? I don't know about you, but every single day, I have the opportunity to look at a temptation or a sin and either lean into it or turn around and walk toward God. That's daily repentance. Confess. We confess Jesus is Lord. Again, we can do this every day. I incorporate it into my prayer time. Maybe you do as well, because I pray the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I say, Jesus... I'm setting you aside as Lord of my heart right now for this day. Confess Jesus as Lord. Baptism, that's transliterated from the Greek word baptizo. If it were translated, you know what baptizo means? Immerse, like immerse in water. But in our case, we were placed in Christ. And every day we can immerse ourselves into Christ. You know, one of the great things about the one-year Bible, I, that's what I use for my devotions. A lot of you do as well. I recommend it. One of the great things is in the one-year Bible, you read every single day, they divide up the readings. So you've got some Old Testament, but you've also got the New Testament. You're reading through the whole Bible in a year. On January 1, we started in the Gospel of Matthew. Here we are in May. We're about a third of the way through the Gospel of John. Every day for the last five months, we have, if you're reading in that particular Bible reading program, we're immersing ourselves in the life of Christ. Do you not think that's going to make a difference of whether or not we are holding firm to our faith? Let's dance with the one who brought us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, today we have so much for which to be grateful and thankful. There's not a person in this room who has not been beamed in the head by the ball and life's game. There are things in life that have passed us by. There are things that we may have missed out on. That's the human condition. But we face our lives with hope and with faith and with courage because there's a resurrection of the body coming, a resurrection to life. We're going to continue to dance with you, Lord, the one who brought us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.